0: This evening we turn to Zechariah chapter 3 it's 10 verses the fourth in the sequence of Zechariah's night visions hear the word of the Lord then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule in my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here Hear now O Joshua the high priest you and your friends who sit before you for they are men who are a sign behold I will bring my servant the branch for behold on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree." The reading of God's Word. Let's ask his blessing upon our time studying it. Lord, we thank you for this evening, another time to refresh our souls at the fountain of your goodness, a time to experience a kind of spiritual oasis during our pilgrimage through the wilderness of this world, a dry and weary land, and granting us even a foretaste of heaven. We pray that you would grant us understanding of this text which contains truths that are so basic and simple and other things that are very mysterious and hard to understand. But we pray that our souls would be encouraged and pointed to Christ, and that we would uh, respond to your word with love and reverence and obedience and gratitude, so that we would serve you all of our days and bring you the glory you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we've now um, reached the halfway point in our uh, of Zechariah's night visions. And um, this vision in chapter 3, as well as the next, which is chapter four, those two combined stand at the center of this series of eight total visions. Um, I don't want to put you to sleep with this, but there's this kind of a literary observation to make about how the, how the, the, the visions are structured overall. It's, if you care about details, it's called a chiasm, but don't worry about that as much as just knowing that it kind of moves from related themes into a a center, kind of like maybe a bullseye type of thing. And so in visions one and eight, um, on both sort of the farthest ends of Zechariah's visions, um, you know, the focus is broad in scope regarding the nations of the world, um, the empires. And then uh, the next uh, uh, visions uh, to, to take together essentially are visions two and seven, which kind of narrow the scope to the land of Judah, and then visions three uh, and six um, focus on Zion, the capital, more, more narrowly, and uh, the temple. But here in, in four and five, which together form the center uh, of the sequence, um, as Meredith Klein said, he said, we find ourselves at the holy of holies. The ultimate center of the cosmos, where the Lord is enthroned in the midst of his angelic council. So that's what's going on. And if something is at the sort of literary or compositional center of a book, then it ought to be at the center of our own uh, theology and understanding. And so, point being that uh, to just state it at the outset, uh, you know, the center is not the world, the center is not the church, the center is here. And the focus of these two visions is the Messiah, the Messiah and his work uh, of salvation as the priest king. So we're looking at um, this vision uh, in chapter 3. And for the first time in this particular one, uh, we're introduced to uh, a historical person. Our historical person is brought into view. We have not seen this yet, but we see Joshua. A high priest, a real person. <laughs> uh, in fact, both of the central visions of this sequence concern two individuals who are indeed central to the life of the post-exilic community in Zechariah's day. There's Joshua, the, the priestly figure, and Zerubbabel. We'll talk more about him next Sunday. He's the royal figure. And, and so, in the sequence of visions, the spotlight now falls on these two leaders, who had already become active participants in the work of rebuilding the temple. These two key players in God's declared purposes. But the night visions, Zechariah uh, show us. Um, they show us the the uh, the night visions of Zechariah show us the broader significance. the you might. It's not going too far to say the messianic significance of their existence as what, what uh, the prophet calls signs. That's the term used in the text. Signs of the greater things yet to come. Literally men who are a sign of God's future purposes for his people in the messianic age. And when the kingdom comes and the true temple uh, is established. Um, and so, ultimately, these two figures in these two visions at the center are types of the coming true priest-king over the house of God, which you know who that is. <clears throat> in this fourth vision here in chapter 3, Zechariah is shown uh, uh, what, what appears to be uh, a problem, an insurmountable problem. Joshua, this, their high priest... Uh, is unclean. He's unclean. Okay, that's the problem. And and then the night visions now take the prophet into the sort of arena of of the heavenly courtroom, sort of as it overlaps uh, and intersects with the earthly uh, courtroom, as it were, the temple. So we have this judicial scene now where the prophet is shown trial in progress or just about to get underway. And in this judgment scene the judge in this scene is the angel of the Lord appearing once again. That visible manifestation of the second person of the Trinity prior to the incarnation. This is the Christ figure in the passage who acts here as God's appointee and representative, sovereignly uh, uh, presiding over and uh, directing the proceedings. The defendant on trial is, of course, Joshua, the high priest, unclean, dressed in filthy garments. As we're told in verse 3. And also present this trial is Satan, the accuser. The accuser who stands at Joshua's right side like a prosecuting attorney, eager to present evidence before the heavenly tribunal, which he thinks to Joshua's condemnation, disqualification as priest. And so this is a very serious situation in view. Because Joshua is the, is, the, is the spiritual leader of the covenant community, who, in the normal course of events, is the one who, who will officiate in the rebuilt temple. But clearly, in this vision, uh, we, we're, we're seeing how he's so clearly unfit to do so. According to the law of Moses... If you go back, read from the first five books of Moses here and there, the high priest was this uh, you know, supreme intermediary between the people of God and the God of the people, sort of the appointed <clears throat> go-between. He alone, this one, by virtue of his office, had the, this awesome privilege once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, to enter the most holy, the only one, and to enter the most holy place of the temple, And to do so with the blood of a sacrificial animal, and that in order to to intercede for the people, removing their impurity, making atonement, so that they would be acceptable to the Lord. And before the high priest could enter the most holy place on this day of atonement, uh, he would put on clean, holy garments, uh, these pure vestments in order to symbolize the need for the mediator, the representative and go-between to be holy. And in his role as the people's representative, he also, uh, as part of his uh, adornment, uh, wore their names on the breast piece of his robe over his heart. And on two elaborately ornamented pads on his shoulders. You can read all about that in Exodus 28, I'm trying to keep it short. In other words, the acceptability of the people with God, their acceptability as, as, as God's covenant community, depended critically. On the acceptability of their high priest, so remember that he was one who symbolically carried them in the presence of God again as their representative, as their mediator. It's very important to understand that if you want to sort of get at how this what what this vision is is communicating to us. In other words, it's not Joshua personally. That is significant for this vision, as just some you know, individual guy chosen out of a crowd. It's the fact that he holds the office, this high and holy office of high priest, who in his official standing represents the entire community of God's chosen people. And because of his crucial, uh, the, the crucial importance of what the high priest did, In his ministrations, he had a special obligation to strive for perfection and to adhere uh, in dress and behavior. To adhere to a regime that symbolized the total purity, the holiness required for access to God. And also when he entered the most holy place, the high priest wore a gold plate on the front of his turban. You know, the forehead, inscribed with the words, holy to the Lord. And then you come to this vision, and what a contrast we see, right? (laughs) What a contrast this is to the filthy garments worn by Joshua the high priest. For the high priest to be standing before the angel of the Lord, the judge in filthy garments was a grave situation, not only for him, but really for, for, the, for all Israel. In fact, some of you might not want to hear this and might wish I hadn't said it, but the Hebrew word for filthy here is derived from the root for human excrement. <laughs> so... It leaves us with the particularly graphic image of this particular uncleanness. He's clothed in excrement soiled clothes. Self evidently, he's unfit to be in the presence of God. The one, that God whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin. Priest, Joshua is most worthy of condemnation unclean. And again, that means that the whole covenant community is in trouble. Not just this one man. Because he, again, is their mediator and their representative before the Lord. And as such, he stands before the angel of the Lord here in the vision. Turned, as it were, inside out with what he really is on full display. And what the whole covenant nation really is in in Uh, in, in their covenant breaking, you know, but he stands here covered with shame and defiled and condemned in the very courtroom of heaven. It's possible that Satan was making accusations, and they're just not recorded. But it's also possible given the Absence of Satan's words that this accuser doesn't even need to present a case against Joshua. (laughs) Right? The the filthy garments that the high priest wears do it for him. They speak for themselves. There's surely no hope for this man or for those he represents. So there's that problem. Serious problem. What appears to be an insurmountable problem problem how can a sinful man like Joshua be acceptable to God how can anything he does be acceptable or advance God's purposes and likewise the people he represents he's unworthy to appear before the Lord and to receive his blessing he's disqualified from priestly ministrations and the accusation of Satan if, whether spoken or not, has merit. It's absolutely true. It's not a lie. Witness the silence of Joshua. He's not talking either, is he? He has nothing to say in his own defense or in defense of the people he represents. They're guilty too. Then something totally unexpected happens, doesn't it? As we read on, an astonishing reversal is shown to Zechariah. And that's recorded in verses 2 through 7. What happens? Who's responsible? Well, in the first place, we hear this word of rebuke. A rebuke. Satan's eager for the opportunity to press the charges, right? Uh, his case is immediately ruled out of order, however. Immediately. Inadmissible. Declared inadmissible, as it were, in in the divine courtroom. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And this rebuke comes out of the sovereign, uh, electing love of God for his covenant of grace. He says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And so the Lord graciously declares to you that Joshua is a saved man. And that he simply will not allow any charge Satan brings against him to stand. The accuser's case is immediately ruled out of order. The judge, the angel of the Lord, the judge, now acts as Joshua's advocate. His advocate, his defense attorney. And this divine word of rebuke from the judge advocate is followed by this wonderful word of remission. I love it. here. Joshua's standing before the Lord here in these filthy garments, excrement-soiled clothes, symbolic, of course, of sin and iniquity and purity. But how wonderful to read what happens next. It doesn't stop there. That's not the end of the story. The angel of the Lord orders that he be removed, taken off remove, he says, remove. Remove the filthy garments from him. And if you're wondering what that represents, you're told, he says to Joshua, by way of interpretation, behold, it's not just about the clothes. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I have removed your sin. Meredith Klein comments, he says, Removal of the unclean clothing symbolized the legal blotting out of sins, the rebuttal of Satan's accusations, forgiveness, the imputation of the sins of God's elect to Christ. So I hope you're starting to get the picture. But that's not all that we see in this picture. There's more. The, this first step, this initial act, um, you might call it divestiture or something, it's followed by a second more positive one. Joshua's justifications is by an act of reclothing. It is the angel of the Lord, again, who, who continues to exercise this sovereign and gracious initiative in this subsequent uh, action, explaining to Joshua the meaning of the removal of his offending garments, having to do with the removal of iniquity. He appends the promise that he will reclothe him in new apparel. Saying, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. In other words, garments that are, uh, that are fitting and uh, suitable to stand in the presence of the King of Kings and, and, and act in behalf of himself and the people of God in the temple. So, whereas the filthy garments represent sin, these pure vestments represent an altogether new righteousness, which is imputed to him by grace. The Lord provides it. This righteousness not of his own making, thereby removing any basis, for any charge, the satanic accuser might attempt to level. And then... Comes the crowning moment, if you like, of, of this whole transaction, the whole scene. Zechariah breaks in and requests the completion of this act of reclothing with, with the placing of a clean turban on Joshua's head, and that's what happens. Verse five, and so, just in this short, compressed, almost period of time, his investiture is complete. The high priest is reclothed in ceremonial, ceremonially pure. Uh, vestments, festival garments in the presence of the angel of the Lord is the judge and advocate and that as a sign of God's acceptance of him and God's acceptance in him of the people, those sinful but chosen elect people whom this priest that the priestly office High priest represented. And then um, going into verses six and seven briefly, the charge is given by the angel of the Lord now speaking in God's name. And Joshua was told uh, that if he faithfully discharges the duties of his office, he will have charge of God's courts in the temple and be given the right of access among those who are standing here, that is, in the heavenly court, into the very presence of God, and there to fulfill his priestly role by interceding on behalf of the people. So this is good news for Joshua. What better news could any man hear? But there's a question sort of lingering in the air that demands to be answered. And that is this. If this is in fact a courtroom scene or a judicial scene, what has happened to due process? I mean what kind of judge is this who on the one hand acknowledges the reality of Joshua's sin and at the same time as his advocate refuses to allow his case against him to How can a man who ought to be condemned be summarily acquitted and reinstated and recommissioned to his high priestly functions? Well, the good news is there is an explanation. There is an explanation. And to find out what that explanation is, all you need to do is read on. Because it's there in verses 8 through 10. We're told that the explanation lies in something that God will do in the future. Are you following? Joshua and his associates, his his priestly associates, are men symbolic of things to come. They are signs of things to come, and especially of the fact that God will bring in this coming day his servant, the branch, which is a dual title that identifies this coming one as both priest and king, priestly servant, royal branch. And this brings us to an astonishing promise which bridges the gap between what Zechariah has just seen in the vision and the massive problem that faces the whole covenant congregation in the real world is that it is a promise that sums up the good news of the gospel in a single sentence. If you want to know what that is, just look at verse 9. Regarding this, the work, God's work through these priest, king, servant branch. The Lord says, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That is, what Zechariah has just seen done symbolically in this vision for Joshua the high priest, the representative of the people, will one day be done actually for the entire community, the whole sum total of God's elect, in a single day, once and for all, when the greater Joshua comes, when the servant branch comes, who would be the ultimate high priest of the people of God. And furthermore, this promise, this is part I don't fully get, but I'll take the stab. This promise is engraven, we're told, engraven on a stone, which is given to Joshua, as a—I think probably as, as, a, as like a guarantee of its fulfillment. A stone with seven eyes, perhaps intended to be uh, worn on the front of Joshua's turban. A, as a constant reminder to him, the stone with seven eyes will serve as a As a constant reminder and a token that all of God's attention is is focused on bringing to pass this very promise, which is inscribed on it. Every time Joshua and his associates the temple to engage in their priestly duties, they would effectively be claiming this promise and doing so as men who are signs of things to come. And so too, especially with Joshua when he entered the most holy place every year on the annual day of atonement with the blood of the sacrificial victim to intercede for the people. One day, in the fullness of time, God would send his servant, the branch. And then the problem of uncleanness would be dealt with finally, once and for all. And it was the promise Joshua and those he served as the high priest were to depend on utterly for their acceptance with God. When the Messiah comes, when the priest king comes, the servant branch, in that day, iniquity would be removed and replaced with the reckoning of righteousness. When that happened, the complete blessing of the restored covenant relationship, the new covenant blessing, would be experienced at last. And it, 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 it's described in this language here in verse 10, reminiscent of the idealized golden age of Solomon's unified kingdom. That one commentator calls it a miniature picture of paradise, of perfect peace and abundant provision. We read, every one of you will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So in summary, and and moving towards wrapping this up, the message of this fourth Night Vision, this central one in the series of Night Visions, turns on two key figures. One, Joshua the High Priest, The spiritual leader of the community, chosen, called to priestly service, Uh, the representative of the people, is mediator but unclean. And secondly, the coming one, the servant branch, through whom that uncleanness will be dealt with finally, and that in a single day. And so it is a vision of sin in the life of God's chosen people. Sinful but chosen people. And it's about God's way of dealing with it. The solution shown to be symbolized or typified in the sacrificial intercessory ministry of the high priest under the old covenant, but realized, realized only in the person and ministry of the Messiah, the perfect servant of God, the branch, the true Priest King. Joshua had the promise of his coming and of that single day when he would deal with sin. Zechariah had that promise too. But I declare that we have the fulfillment of it in the cross of Jesus Christ. His cry, It is finished, this dying breath, was the triumphant announcement that this long-awaited day had finally arrived, and that the promised uh, cleansing and uh, 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 purification had been realized. So beloved, Zechariah's central night vision here has become a reality. We're not looking forward to it anymore. We look back upon it, even as we eat and drink this bread and cup. And here, with you know, the informed insight, we've all read our New Testaments. We know the Gospel, and with that, we we can see how everything Joshua received was enabled by a group of Joshua making uh, what, one, what one refers to as. It was was enabled by the greater Joshua making the opposite move. Here's what I mean. Joshua received a clean turban on his head. The greater Joshua was crowned with thorns. Joshua was clothed with these pure vestments or festal garments. The greater Joshua had the clothing stripped from his back and divided among those who crucified him. Joshua was judged and declared clean on the basis of God's choice of him for salvation and found not guilty of defilement that was really his. The Joshua was judged by sinners, found guilty on trumped up charges and handed over to be crucified. And yet this too was God's choice. Joshua's sin was taken away he was declared innocent able to stand before God as high priest for his people bearing their name before God the greater Joshua who committed no sin was made sin by God and was separated from God the Father by that burden as the high priest for sinners the greater Joshua Jesus Christ takes our uncleanness upon himself. Our sin is imputed to him in order to effect an astonishing transfer, a great exchange. As Zechariah's vision had portrayed, our uncleanness is removed in Christ, and we are clothed in perfect righteousness through the ministry of our great high priest. Consequently, because of our righteousness in him, we are given unhindered access to the throne presence of the Lord our God. We are not condemned. Yes, we are great sinners. Who will deny it? Will you defend yourself with empty claims to a righteousness of your own? God forbid. If you're listening to the sermon this morning, you know what I'm going. We are indeed sinners. and We are indeed unclean, unfit of God. Facing this truth is the first step towards cleansing and and wholeness. Confessing it. We don't have to try to defend ourselves by explaining or excusing ourselves or trying to shift blame to others. Joshua is silent throughout this vision. There's nothing he can say in his own defense because he's guilty as charged. The accusation Satan levels at him is true. He is not righteous and neither are we. Neither are we. But, and this is really the heart of the matter, neither are we condemned. Yes, we are great sinners, but Jesus is a greater Savior for everything necessary for us to be accepted by God and to be able to serve him has already been done for us once and for all on a single day at the cross that's good friday when jesus died in our place when the priest offered his the sacrifice of himself and it was there at the cross that due process was observed And our sin was dealt with in strict justice and with the seriousness that it deserves. By that one final perfect sacrifice, we have beyond the power of Satan's accusations and of God's own wrath against us, now and forever, indeed the only one The only only one who has the right to condemn us as judge has made satisfaction, satisfaction for us and now intercedes for us in heaven as our advocate. And because of his faithfulness in our place as our representative and mediator, we know that God Our God can cleanse any past, no matter how soiled it is, no matter how filthy and unclean it is, even our past. God is a God who plucks brands from the fire by grace. He removes filthy garments and replaces them with pure vestments. A God who gives us a... Future so unlike our past, and a fresh start. A God who washes us clean and who purifies us from all impurity so that we are immune from any indictment by the accuser. And so, in conclusion, as the Apostle Paul would say, centuries after Zechariah, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is, indeed, interceding for us? Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, that you have revealed to us at the center of these visions, the very center and core of the good news, that our Lord Jesus has made full atonement for us on the cross in that single day, and that we have been pardoned and made clean in him, that our iniquities have been removed, and we have been clothed with his perfect righteousness and spotless innocence, all is an act of grace, all before the promise of your covenant, not because we deserve it, for we are sinners, but we are also chosen in Christ. And so no one can bring any charge against God's elect because you have justified us and there's no condemnation. And we thank you also for the confidence we have uh, to enter into the most holy places by the blood of Jesus and enjoy with you um, true worship And each and every day, that uh, sweet communion, Lord, with you, in which we constantly abide. And we pray now that as we um, eat and drink, uh, that this um, sacrament of Christ's body and blood would strengthen us uh, and confirm our faith and reassure us of these precious truths at the center of our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.